The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Again, just the question of the day. It's real simple. And you can answer this in your own heart, in your own mind. You can even write it down if you'd like. Save it for later because I'll give you the answer later. Or maybe you can meditate on your answer until later. And the question of the day, which is the theme of the sermon, is why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Someone were to ask you, they found out you're a Christian or you believe in Jesus, and they said, well, why did, why did Jesus come? Why was Jesus born? Why did he come the first time? Why did he come 2,000 years ago? What might you say as a Christian? Or maybe you're not a Christian, you don't know the Bible very well, and if somebody asked you that, why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Or maybe you already have an opinion about that, and you haven't even read the Bible necessarily, you just you heard uh, people talk about it, and you just made an assumption of why Jesus came. So that really is the question of the day. Why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? So hopefully you've got your answer logged and registered and ready to talk about it as we are in the gospel of Luke. But before we go there, I would like you to actually turn in your Old Testament. We don't always get an opportunity to spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament, especially since we are in Luke and Hebrews concentrating on the New Testament. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, so that makes sense. But it's good to always go back to certain portions of the Old Testament to get uh, historical context. But go to Exodus 32 if you can. Uh, if you have a Bible, it'd be great to look at it and follow along uh, as I'm reading this chapter. Uh, Exodus 32, I think this will really lay a good, solid foundation for you. Uh, as we look at Luke chapter 12 in just a minute, it'll give you some historical context. Maybe the light will go on. Think, oh, okay, that, that's why Jesus said that in Luke 12. This is very helpful. Exodus 32. Just to give you context, maybe some of you aren't too familiar with the Old Testament. Maybe you haven't had a chance to read through the entire Old Testament. There's a lot there. So it's a challenge, but you should if you're a Christian. It's part of God's story. It's absolutely fundamental. Or, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been in the book of Exodus. That might be the case with this chapter. Some of you might be surprised this chapter is even in the Bible. Let's read it. Context, 1400 B.C., about 1,400 years before Christ has come, God has raised up Moses to be the leader of his people and to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, where they have been enslaved for many years, and against the will of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, Moses successfully leads over a million Israelites, over a million, imagine that, out of slavery. God parts the Red Sea after doing 10 miracles of judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt. They go through the Red Sea, and being led by God, Moses successfully leads over 1 million Israelites out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and then now they're going to head down into Sinai and go to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, it's called, and there God would give his people the Ten Commandments along with all the other 603 laws that he wanted them to have as a theocracy. And Moses would go up on that mountain, speak 
as it were, face to face with God and then go down and give God's word to the people down below. So these people have just been liberated. They plundered the Egyptians. God is providing miraculously food through the wilderness, protection supernaturally. They have everything that they need. They've seen splendor and wonder like never before through the direct intervention of God at a miraculous level. It's undeniable, these ten plagues that were miracles, and then the Red Sea opening up, and you would think that these people are committed to Yahweh, their God, forever, no matter what, without compromise, but that is not the case, and that brings us to Genesis or Exodus 32. This is after all that has transpired. Moses is up on the mountain. It ends up he's there for about 40 days. The people are down below waiting for Moses, their leader. They get antsy. They're impatient. Imagine that, people being impatient. 40 days. Well, they had had it. We're not waiting 40 days. And so they pressed Aaron, Moses' brother, and they made a demand on Aaron. And here's the demand. Look at, keep in mind, Moses and Joshua and some of the leaders, they're up on the mountain of God, getting the word of God, getting the Ten Commandments. And then the people are down below, and this is what they're doing while Moses is absent. Uh, Exodus 32, verse 1 says, Now when the people, the Israelites, saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain because he was up there for 40 days, uh, the people, the Israelites, who just got saved by God, Yahweh, rescued out of Egypt, they're in a better position. The, the same people, the people assembled about Aaron. So this massive crowd comes upon Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us a God. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, Come, make us an Elohim. Come make us an Elohim. That's Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the word, or, or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. This is the creator God. And so they go up to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they demand as a crowd, this rabble mob crushing in on him, come, this is a, a, a demand, make us a God, get this, who will go before us. Verse 2, Aaron complies. He caves, and he says to all the people, tear off the gold rings which are in your ears. Tear off all the gold that's in your ears from your wives, from your sons, from your daughters. Bring them to me. He takes all that gold, and then he forges it into a statue, an idol, a molten calf. Verse 4. A cow. Golden cow. The golden calf. And here's what the people said when they, and behold, the golden cow. And all the people, this is what they said in verse 4. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Wow. Literally, it's, this is your Elohims. This is your gods. These are your gods that brought you up from the, land of Egypt. And then they built an altar. Uh, Aaron declared a feast day tomorrow to the sacred golden cow. And they will make sacrifices. And at the end of verse 5, after calling him Elohim, Aaron says this, we will burn sacrifices to this cow and have a feast unto Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Yahweh is the special covenant name that God gave to the Israelites as his people. That's his personal name. And Aaron is calling that golden calf Yahweh. So the next day, all the people get up, they have their sacrifice. 
Uh, they have their burnt offerings. Uh, then verse 6, at the end of the verse, it says, And all the people sat down to eat. And this was kind of a religious kind of eating of worship. Eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. These aren't children at lunchtime. These are adults. They rose up to play. Uh, that's a kind of an innuendo for probably all kinds of immoral behavior. It was out of control. Because it says later on, they were out of control. One translation says they just went wild. Another translation says they broke loose. Like an animal, unleashed, unhinged. They rose up to play. Uh, Then verse 7 says, Yahweh spoke to Moses there up on the hill. And he tells Moses, go down at once for your people. God's calling the people Moses' people. For your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate, stiff-necked people. Now then, let me alone. This is what God is saying to Moses. Now then, leave me alone, that my anger may burn against these people, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you, Moses, singular, a great nation. Wow. So in his fury and his holy wrath, God is literally telling Moses, I'm going to snuff them out. I'm going to wipe them out. He literally says, I am going to destroy them. Verse 11, Moses, the prophet, but also the priest who intercedes for his people, entreated the Lord, pleaded with the Lord, prayed to the Lord, was trying to be a mediator for the sinners to a holy God. That's what that means. Then Moses entreated the Lord, his Yahweh, his God, and he said, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains? Verse 13, then Moses reminds God of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, God, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. You made an oath with yourself in Genesis 15, and God did. He made a promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would be his people forever. He would give them the land forever. It would be his elect forever. And to validate that Abrahamic covenant, God made an oath and he didn't shake hands with Abraham. God swore unto himself. Meaning the oath could not be broken. And he's responsible for carrying out the covenant. Moses knows this. And so he reminds God of the oath that he made to his people. You made an oath to yourself and you said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. God, what about your promise that you made, your eternal promise that you made? Verse 14, Moses' intervention was efficacious. Here's Moses, fallen, finite creature, pleading with the immutable perfect, infinite, holy God of the universe, the sovereign one. And look at verse 14. Look at how powerful prayer can be. The prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, and so it did here. It says, so Yahweh changed his mind. Whoa. Yahweh changed his mind, meaning he wasn't going to slaughter him then, as he just told Moses he would. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. 
Instead of your mind going, oh, I thought God couldn't change. I thought God was immutable. That's not where your mind should go. Your mind should go, how gracious and merciful is God? How awesome that he condescends to interact with finite creatures through answering prayer. That's where our mind should go. What a gracious God. Verse 19, it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp. So Moses and Joshua, and they're all coming down the mountain now. And Moses came near to the camp. Uh, they heard a bunch of noise. Is that a party? Is that what's going on? Is that war? Is it singing? And then Moses in the distance, he can see, the first thing he sees probably from the sun glittering off this golden calf is he sees this golden calf. What else does he see? Dancing. That's not just square dancing. This is probably some kind of a religious, gross, immoral dancing and celebration of this false god. So he sees the calf and the dancing. And the irony here in the middle of verse 19. And so when Moses sees this, it says, Moses' anger burned. He just got trying to, uh, finished trying to calm God down and his anger that was burning. God, God, don't do anything. Don't vent your wrath. And then Moses gets stirred up. This is righteous indignation. So Moses' anger burned against their sin, and he got so angry. He's coming down with the Ten Commandments, those huge, massive two stones that had the Ten Commandments that were written literally with the finger of God. God doesn't have a finger, but God literally somehow wrote directly on those stone tablets the Ten Commandments. Moses is coming down with those to give to the people, and Moses is so angry. Yeah, he's going to give it to the people. He does. He gives it to the people, these Ten Commandments. He, he takes these huge, massive stones, and he throws them from the top of the mountain down to the bottom, and they just shatter into pieces. Here's the law of God. Uh, so Moses' anger burned. He threw the tablets from his hands, shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And then it goes on, verse 20. Moses took the calf, that golden calf, which they had made, and he burned it with fire. So he, he melted it, and then it probably cooled off a little bit, and then he just started with a sledgehammer or whatever. Then he just starts shattering that thing to pieces. And pieces are shattering all over this. It's, he's grinding it into dust. He ground it to powder. This must have taken quite some time. That's how they spent the day. Maybe Moses came down. Okay, we're transitioning now into the Living McManus translation. But anyway, some commentary. But uh, maybe he came down before lunch. He throws down these tablets. He shatters those. He smashes the golden cap. And then it says he shattered this golden cap, which was made of gold. He had to melt it down, which probably took some time. And then it kind of cold, and then he had to shatter it into pieces and then into dust. That probably took hours and hours. Can you imagine? So you got 1.3 million people standing around just kind of watching Moses go crazy with his sledgehammer on this stuff. Waiting for hours on end. Probably the guilt is growing more and more, realizing, oh, wow, we blew it. Wow, he's really angry. Wow, he keeps smashing. Wow, they're not pieces anymore. It's like fine gold dust. What, what's going on? That's what's going on. Then he took the dust and he scattered it over the surface of the waters. And then at the end of the verse, and then he made the sons of Israel drink it. He takes the dust from the calf, and he throws it in the water, and he forces them to drink it. That is an act of judgment. And there's a lot of implications there uh, as a sign. What in the world? That's your God. I just shattered your God to pieces, number one. I just drowned it in the water. And then, you know what? There's consequences to sin, and you've got to own it. You've got to own it personally so much, you're going to ingest it. Is it bitter? Is it disgusting? Is it making you sick? That's what sin does. 
But that's what he did. And then Moses talks to Aaron, his brother. So Aaron, what in the world happened to Aaron? Aaron gives some lame excuse. Moses just can't believe it. Wow. Uh, verse 25. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, so even Moses, so they didn't stop. This is where those English translations give a different wording here for this Hebrew phrase. So Moses is looking around, and also when he's coming down the mountain, he just sees they are out of control in their false worship. Uh, the New American Standard says, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, uh, the ESV says when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, they were just unhinged. No restraints. And then the NET says, when Moses saw the people were running wild. And that's what was going on. For Aaron had let them get out of control and run wild to be a derision among their enemies. Verse 26, uh, then Moses stood in the gate. Moses was not done. He puts his sledgehammer down, and now he picks up his sword. Because verse 26 says, Now, when Moses, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. This is key. Come to me. Well, what does Moses mean by that? It's whoever is for, specifically, Yahweh, come to me. I am his representative. I am his ambassador. I am his prophet. Deuteronomy 18. I speak to God face to face. I am a friend of God like no other human being in that day. That's what he means. So those who are for Yahweh come to me. So he's drawing a line in the sand. He's calling that 1.3 million people to account. And you need to make a decision. He forces them into a corner. You need to make a decision. You are either for God and his holiness or for your sin. And you resist the truth of God and you resist God himself. And, you, and there is no middle ground. There are only two kinds of people. Those who know God and love God and those who love their sin. And there is a line of demarcation today. And it's going to be made apparent to all. Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. So out of this 1.3 million, there are probably people in the periphery who wanted nothing to do with this. And they weren't even involved in the idolatry. Uh, but there was a large crowd that was. And it says that all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. So these were the offspring of, or people related to Aaron. Uh, the sons of Levi who would be in the priesthood. They're supposed to represent God. And so the priests, the Levites, they're convicted. And so they align with Moses. Moses, uh, we're, we're with you. We are with Yahweh. And so some come to Levi. And then Moses divides up the crowd. And there's two camps of people. And then Moses said to the Levites and who knows who else. He says, thus says Yahweh. So here's a prophecy. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh. So he tells all the Levites to get their sword out. Probably Egyptian swords. Remember they plundered the Egyptians? Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp of the 1.3 million people of the Israelites at the foot of the mountain and kill every man his brother and kill every man his friend and kill every man his neighbor. And there was a wholesale slaughter that day. Verse 28, so the sons of Levi did as Moses or God had instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people were slaughtered that day. 3,000 bodies just strewn laying around for the people to see. All the spectators 
having lost fathers, grandfathers, brothers, relatives, neighbors. Verse 29, uh, then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to Yahweh. You've got to make a choice. It's one or the other. It's loving a holy God or loving your sin. There's no middle ground. This is all about the truth, spiritual truth, God's truth, eternal truth. And what does spiritual, eternal truth do? It divides. It always divides. This is just one example. This is graphic. This is gruesome for many. This is startling. So many have questioned this. Even people who call themselves Christians reading this, they can't handle it at face value, and they come up with an excuse to not take it at base value. Oh, this isn't historical. Actually, this never really happened. This is metaphorical. It's just teaching a theological truth. And they jettison the historicity of the Bible as a result. Dedicate yourself, verse 29, then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord. For every man, actually every person is what it means. For every person has been against his son and against his brother in order that he, God may bestow a blessing upon you today. This is not just all wrath and fury and blood. If you have chosen Yahweh, if you are truly with him, Good news, verse 29, there's blessing. God wants to bestow blessing upon you. And he makes it really clear there's just two camps. And this, this truth about God is actually even going to divide families, every man against his own son and against his own brother. 1400 B.C. Okay, you fast forward in the days of Jesus. And who's Jesus dealing with? He's, he's dealing with the Jewish leaders who teach in the synagogues and run the temple. And they are focused on Old Testament scripture. They know the book of Exodus like the back of their hand. They've been studying it their whole life. They know the story. I'm convinced this story was probably in the forefront of their mind when Jesus, Jesus started talking and saying the words that he said in Luke chapter 12, which is where I want you to go now because that's our passage of the day. Luke chapter 12. That's just one story in the Old Testament. I could have picked out about 10 more. Sobering, isn't it? Uh, it raises a lot of questions. But it is the truth. We believe the Bible is true, right? The Old Testament, it is history. It's literal. It really happened that way. God is perfect. God really said that. God required that. God did that. God always does the right thing. God can't sin. God is perfect. He is holy. We deserve nothing. This is the truth. This kind of spiritual truth that we just read, that resonates with the true child of God. Because these kind of stories in the Bible, they'll always create a reaction. Several reactions, actually. Always. That's what spiritual truth always does. It creates a reaction from the listeners or the readers. And there are probably three different reactions as we read this chapter. Some who were familiar with the Old Testament, more mature in the faith maybe. Or you just have this kind of heart that whenever you hear the truth of the word of God, you, you don't doubt it or question it or you're not skeptical. You just embrace it. Oh, wow, this is what God said? Okay, I believe. I believe. And then what does it do? It re recalibrates your entire frame of mind about everything. It teaches you how to think properly about spiritual things and about the nature of God. So 
no doubt there were many Christians like that. They, they heard the voice of God in Scripture, and they embraced the voice of God. They embraced this truth. God, this is what happened. This is what you said. I embrace this. This is uh, maybe for some of you it was hard. It's a struggle. I've got to think about it. Wow. Meditate on it. Plead with you for understanding. So no doubt that's a, a large group of true believers. Jesus said, when you hear my voice, you're going to embrace the truth. My sheep know my voice. My sheep welcome my voice. He's talking about they love truth. They embrace truth. Then there were other Christians, and you're really Christians, and maybe you're reading this for the first time, or maybe you've forgotten this story, and you were confronted and startled and shaken up, and, whoa, wow, this, wow, this, is, this can't be. Or maybe as a Christian you're thinking, wow, this is kind of embarrassing. I hope uh, my unbelieving family doesn't read this passage and know this chapter's in the Bible. Better avoid that one because I don't want to stir up the pot and mess up Thanksgiving dinner. That's how some Christians, some Christians may struggle with this, and some Christians may want to downplay it, and some Christians, unfortunately, might even defer to liberal theology and liberal theologians and those who are going to say, yeah, I believe in the Bible, the Bible is authoritative, but you can't take all of it literally. It's a parable. And there are plenty of Christians who do that. That's not the right reaction. And then there's the third response, and that's who are not, those who are not the children of God. They heard God's voice. They saw it right there in Exodus 32, uh, and it is reprehensible in their mind. This can't possibly be true. This is not God. God is a God of love. This is why the Bible is not true. There's no way that Christians could actually believe this. And if they do, uh, that's why I'm not a Christian. And that's why Christians are despicable and don't warrant a voice. So there, those are your three possible reactions. Well, let's go to uh, Luke chapter 12. And let's read where we are. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 12, it's three years into his ministry, six months left. He left Galilee. He's making his way to Judah, Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified in about six months. He knows that. He's on a mission. He's training his 12 apostles to prepare them to lay the foundation of the, of the church, but also to prepare them for persecution and also to prepare them for death by becoming martyrs. So there's a lot of warning that's going to go on in the next six months. So there's six months left, and now Jesus is making his way. Everybody knows who he is. They're following around for all kinds of different reasons and agendas. And then we saw in chapter 12, verse 1, in this very long sermon that Jesus gave that day, really an evangelistic sermon, and it's a complete overview of biblical truth from A to Z. It's an appeal. Almost one last opportunity before he goes to the cross. Believe in the true God. Fear him. He's been manifest through as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His Son is key to the work that provides salvation. Quit listening to the false teachers who rule and manipulate your life. Stick to God's word. Don't worry. Trust the Lord. Live with a sense of urgency because this Son of Man that you need to confess publicly before me, that same Son of Man is coming again at any time in keeping with Old Testament prophecy, Daniel chapter 7. And you Jews, you know this. Live with a sense of urgency. You could lose your life tonight. And your soul belongs to the God of the universe as creator and judge. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's what he's doing. Choose this day. And before he does that, in addition to that, now he's saying, but when you choose, when you choose, count the cost. He said earlier in the chapter, you need to commit yourself to the Son of Man. You need to confess. Those who confess the Son of Man before men, Jesus the Son of Man will confess them 
before the Father and the angels in heaven. And you need to live in light of his return, which is imminent. But count the cost. If you choose Jesus, count the cost. If you choose Jesus, there will be consequences. If you choose Jesus, they will be severe. Some of these consequences could be devastating. They could be very personal. As a matter of fact, they could affect you at the deepest level, and that's your family life. Your family life. Committing to Jesus Christ could destroy your personal relationships in your immediate family. So he is warning. Count the cost. And that's a common theme of Jesus as he gives the gospel. And that's really what he's doing here. The sermon of the day, it's called Jesus Divides. It's really simple. It comes right from the passage. So let's look at it. After telling about the urgency of the coming of the Son of Man, he says in verse 49, For I have come to cast, for I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled or burning. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed or pressed in or constrained I am until this kindling is accomplished. Do you suppose, as he says to tens of thousands of people right there at the top of his lungs, that's who he's saying this to, as they're crushing in on one another to hear him. He asks the question, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? It's a rhetorical question. It's a challenging question because the answer is kind of yes and no. It really depends on what you mean by peace. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus brings division. Jesus divides. Verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. Earlier I asked you, why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Why was Jesus born? Why did he come the first time? Maybe some of you wrote down, well, Jesus came 2,000 years ago to cast fire upon the earth. If you did, uh, you know your Bible, but usually that's not the answer people give. Uh, The typical Christian, why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? To glorify the Father or to die for sin? That's Christians who know the Bible. They'll say those kind of things. Then there are others who don't know their Bible, but they've got an opinion about Jesus and why he came, and they've been around all through history for the last 2,000 years, and they don't mind sharing their opinion authoritatively, shouting it from the rooftops, from the biggest megaphone that they can find, and their lies and deception has reverberated all throughout history. Even to this day, we hear it all the time, the cacophony of lies about Jesus that people say. Politicians say this. Politicians do this. Politicians who are elected officials whose salaries are paid by taxpayers go into liberal churches and say things about Jesus. Happens all the time. Happened in 2013. Wait, how can you be a public official elected by the people, paid for by the tax collectors, and then go into a church 
and give your political platform and then say something about Jesus. Isn't that illegal? Well, actually it is. But they do. So the world has their wrong view. I mean, some of the most popular ones from the world or even people who claim to be Christians of why Jesus came into the world is probably the most uh, popular one is, that, well, Jesus came to be a loving example, right? Jesus came to be a loving, that, that one has a long history. I mean, formally it goes back to Peter Abelard of the 11th century, uh, some of the greatest theologians, uh, human minds, human intellects in history from the time of Peter Abelard up until the present day have had this view about Jesus uh, that he came to be a loving example. And Peter Abelard formalized it as it was called the moral influence theory. He came to be a loving example. He wasn't God in the flesh. He didn't die to atone for sin. He came to be a loving model and example. And he loved God so much that he was sacrificial. He washed people's feet. He uh, loved sinners. He gave his life as a martyr. And we should do the same. We should be sacrificial. That's called the moral influence. He came to be a good example. That's the most popular theory. All the way from Peter Abelard in the 1100s to one of the greatest minds of all time, Immanuel Kant in the 1800s and all the way up to 2013, Nancy Pelosi. If you remember that, when she proclaimed that to the world. But no, that's not why Jesus came uh, to be a good example. Other popular views are Jesus came. This is growing more and more in popularity, and that's called liberation theology, black theology, feminist theology. It's all the same. Uh, that Jesus came not as deity, but he came as a man, a good man, a powerful man, an influential man. Yes, the Messiah. And he came to liberate people, not spiritually at all, but it's to liberate them from physical oppression here on the earth, all kinds of physical oppression. Economic oppression, that's Marxist theology. This is very common and popular. That's why Jesus came. It's called liberation theology, and there's all kinds of streams of this kind of thought. It's more prominent than, and ubiquitous than you would think if you just kind of scratched on the surface. What is this person talking? Do they really believe in Jesus and why he came? No. He came to be a liberator. He came to be a, a, a political, political activist, to set those, those who are economically oppressed, to set them free. He came to bring not uh, reconciliation between a sinner and God. He came to bring... Um, recompense, or literally reparations. And that's what they believe. This was Barack Obama. This is his theology. It's called liberation theology. Jesus is not the God-man. Jesus didn't come to set people free from their sin. It's from oppression in this life. And it could be uh, he came to set women free from, from men, the patriarchy that we've had for thousands of years that has pressed women. This is liberation theology. And we're hearing it more and more. The, the newest rendition or iteration is uh, Jesus came to set people free from white power and white oppression and masculinity and patriarchy. And on it goes. So it's very popular in our culture today. Uh, they attach, it's blasphemous that they attach Jesus' name to it to try to give it authority and credibility. When they're literally twisting who Jesus is. Jesus, don't be surprised. Matthew 24, one of the last things Jesus said, uh, watch out after I leave. False Christ will rise among you. What's that? That's a false Jesus, a pseudo Jesus. They'll use my name. They'll invoke my title. They'll spew Bible verses if they have to. Don't be deceived. 
Don't believe it. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians. This is, he literally calls it a false Jesus. They're all over the place. So those are common, popular, wrong views about Jesus. Um, here's what the Bible says. There are actually nine explicit statements. Uh, most of them are made by Jesus where he just point blank said, here's why he came into the world. Why was Jesus born 2,000 years ago? Here they are. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. I came to fulfill every single prophecy in the Old Testament, and there are thousands of them. Number two, Jesus said, I came to obey the Father or glorify God. That's Philippians 2.8 and John chapter 6. I came to glorify the Father. That's why he came and all that that entails. Uh, number three, G uh, Jesus came into the world to conquer Satan and death. That's Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus was born as the Messiah to literally conquer Satan and his greatest weapon, death. Number four, why else did Jesus come into the world 2,000 years ago? To rescue sinners. That's Luke 19. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. Not save them from economic oppression. Not save them from the patriarchy that reigns supreme today through white supremacy. This is a spiritual saving. Saving them from their sin. Save their soul. That's what he's talking about. To rescue sinners, number four. Why else did Jesus come? Number five, to serve humanity by dying. That's Mark 10, 45. Son of man came to, not to be served, but to serve and be a ransom for many. He's talking about dying for sinners there. Number six, Jesus came to save the world. That's John chapter 3, very clearly. I did not come into the world to judge the world. That's interesting, John 3. I did not come into the world to judge the world. Wait a minute. I thought we just read in Luke 12, he came to cast fire upon the earth. John 3, he, I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. That's why he came. Uh, number 7, Luke 5, Jesus said, I came into this world to call sinners to repentance. That's why he came. That's Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. That, those are the first words out of his mouth when he began his three and a half year ministry. Jesus came preaching the good news and he said, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom is at hand. He came to call sinners to repentance. Number eight, why did Jesus come? Right here, Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. I have come to bring fire. And then finally, number nine, John 18, 37. Jesus told Pontius Pilate, basically, you don't even know what you're talking about, Pilate. You don't even know who I am or why I came. Here's why I came. I came to manifest, expose, and bring truth to the earth. Why did Jesus come? To bring truth, God's truth, spiritual truth, real truth, final truth, eternal truth, unchanging truth. Truth from God Almighty himself, the greatest manifestation of truth, the incarnation of the Son of God, who was the truth, who is the truth. That's why he came. It's kind of interesting if you look at those nine reasons. Two of those are very general. I came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. That's a big umbrella of what it covers. And also the statement that I came to glorify the Father or be obedient to him. That's another overarching thematic statement. But then you've got one, two, three. Well, you've got two negative reasons he gives of why he came. I came to cast fire on the earth, but also to bring truth. Bring truth. Or right here, I came to divide Matthew 10. That would be synonymous with what Luke 12 says. I came to bring fire. What do you mean by that? Well, verse 51, I came to bring division, not peace. 
What does it mean to bring fire, Jesus? I came to bring division, not peace. What do you mean division? Well, I came to bring judgment. Well, how do you do that? Well, I, I do that by just simply doing John 18, 37. Jesus, who is the truth, incarnate truth, came down here and all he had to do was live and he created division. All he had to do was open his mouth and he created division. And then he pursued his greatest task, which was dying on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God the Father, rising again from the dead. That was all the truth of God. And that very act created division. So Jesus came to bring truth. So when he says, I came to cast fire upon the earth, how do you do that, Jesus? It's just simply by being the truth and speaking the truth. That's what he means. Do you know that there's nothing that divides quicker and at the highest level than just speaking the truth? I mean, you can get just an immediate, visceral, emotional, uncontrolled, guttural reaction from somebody if you just speak truth and they don't like it. It happens all the time, right? All those wonderful ecumenical conversations that Larry King would have on CNN long ago and he'd have a panel of religious leaders and he'd have a Muslim and a Hindu or a New Age guy uh, and then some liberal Roman Catholic and some other flaky uh, evangelical pastor and then he'd have John MacArthur there and then he'd ask them, well, why, is there, uh, why did the two towers go down? Or, you know, some, the, some recent uh, problem of evil in the world that nobody could answer. And they're all giving these uh, squishy answers. And then immediately, and, and uh, Franklin Graham is the same. When you ask him a question, he, he goes right to the heart of the matter. He starts talking about Jesus, who Jesus is, that he is the truth. Uh, sinners hate the truth. And that's what John MacArthur would do. Is, well, God is holy. He's a God of wrath. Uh, death is the penalty for sin. That's the bad news. Every person will die as a result of being a sinner. And that's a manifestation of God's holy wrath. And we don't deserve anything less than that. But God in his grace, because he's also a God of wrath and love, mercy, and grace, he provides a solution for that wrath, to appease his wrath, to absorb that wrath. And he did that by sending Jesus Christ, his son, actually who is the God-man, who is incarnate truth, who gave his life willingly on the cross and died on the cross. And that's why he came and he absorbed the full fury of Almighty God's wrath on his own person, not just his physical body, but on his very soul on behalf of every sinner that would repent and believe in him. And then he died in fulfillment of scripture. He rose himself from the dead in fulfillment of scripture. He ascended back into heaven in a glorified body as the eternal God-man who reigns in all glory and is the sovereign judge of the universe. And the other guys on the panel, they don't like that answer. There is one way. And it is the way of Jesus, the judge. He said that in John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the only way. I am the narrow way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to the Father who is in heaven except through me. That made people mad. That creates division. So why is there division? It's from truth. You speak truth, you're going to make somebody mad. You want to mess up the next Thanksgiving dinner with your family, just start talking truth. If you've got people there who aren't Christians or believers or don't believe in the Bible, and you just start talking about truth, you're going to mess things up. You're going to make people mad. And we've all experienced that. That's what truth does. So truth divides. Truth makes sinners mad. Sinners don't like the truth, the ultimate truth, God's truth, at whatever level it's manifest. And the purer form of that biblical truth, the angrier the sinner will respond and be unable to constrain or constr control themselves. 
when they hear it. And there are people all over the world speaking truth all the time. But if you, and you scratch down, well, why are these people fighting and going after each other? Or why are these people attacking so vehemently and then you go beyond the, beyond the surface? Oh, it's an issue of the truth. When you think of the issues of the day, what makes people so angry? What do, what do people get so emotional about? Well, abortion, right? There's truth at the bottom of that discussion that sinners don't like. That there is a God, that there is a creator, that he made every human being in his image. Every life is sacred. Life begins in the womb. Life begins at conception. God is the judge. That's the truth. They don't like it. They resist it vehemently. So you can even take the so-called political issues of the day that are so divisive and go down and just unveil it. And at the bottom, you're going to find a truth that the sinner hates, the sinner despises. They don't like God's truth. And they will resist it with a passion and almost at any cost. I don't know if you watch the news. Who's the most hated man in the world or America today of the last seven days, would you say? Uh, well, there's a few. Uh, the most hated man, well, I think it's a guy that just spoke a little bit of truth this week. Kanye. <laughs> Kanye. He made the Just the internet blew up. Oh, he's just wearing a shirt. He's an African-American black guy, just for those of you who don't know who Kanye West is. Anyway, and he, he made a shirt, and he's wearing it all over, and he's proud of himself, and he's taking pictures of himself, and he's posting it everywhere, and it says, White Lives Matter. That's it. He, just wearing, he didn't have to say anything, and he is making people mad. But if you think about it, yeah, White Lives Matter, yes, they do. And when the Black Lives Matter thing came out, people were saying, well, don't all lives matter? And then they would just get eviscerated, right? You can't say that. You can't say all lives matter. Really? I thought all people mattered. Well, the Bible says all people matter. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the book of James, every human being is made in God's image and is sacred and precious to God the creator. Every soul is mine. They belong to me. Ezekiel 18, that's what God said. So that was just a footnote. That wasn't even in my notes. But anyway... Well, let's just do a walkthrough. I already read the verses to uh, explain a little bit further here. I, got, I gave you three points there. There's the declaration, verse 49, actually it should be, verse 49. Jesus divides, verse 49. There's the declaration. This is just Jesus saying, it is so. I, I came to divide. I came to bring division. We read Matthew 10. I came to bring a sword. Where'd that come from? I think Deuteronomy 32. Not peace. The declaration. So Jesus makes the declaration. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have come to cast fire. That's significant. Uh, cast fire. Bring fire. This should not be news to anybody, at least us, especially studying the Gospels, because remember the uh, ministry of John the Baptist, who was the laid out the red carpet for Jesus the Messiah and was telling everybody, here comes the Messiah, here he is, here's what he's all about. And John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but one greater than I will come, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And there's a dual aspect there. Those are two different things. When Jesus comes as incarnate truth, he's going to cause a reaction. And everybody will react to the true Jesus. You can't really be neutral. Once you hear the truth about him, you're accountable. And you know it in your soul. You know it in your conscience. 
You're made in the image of God. You've got to choose one or the other. Choose this day whom you will serve, said Joshua. Moses said the same thing. So when Jesus comes, he's going to be baptizing. His message is going to be about two things. His message is about truth, but it's going to cause a reaction and create two responses. One will be, some people will respond with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. I came to baptize or immerse people or smother people or bring them into the world of the Holy Spirit. That's salvation. That's the promise of the new covenant, the coming of the Holy Spirit that formerly began with the church, Acts chapter 2, on the first day of the church. I came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Once you believe in the gospel, that moment you believe you are born again, justified, regenerate, and then God in his grace gives you the Holy Spirit to live in you. And that the, the Holy Spirit lives with you the moment you believe and is with you uh, as long as you live on this earth until you die or until Jesus comes again. The comforter that lives in your soul, that's the Holy Spirit who is always there with you. That's why Jesus could say, I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I, I will always be with you. How? Through the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives in you if you are a Christian. That's being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And you don't even have to ask for the Holy Spirit. You just believe in the gospel and God gives you the Holy Spirit at his initiative. And he literally lives in you. Jesus said in John chapter 7 that the reality of the Holy Spirit, he just continues. He's like fresh, eternal supernatural water deep within the inner recesses of your soul and he just bubbles and bubbles over with refreshing comfort and truth like a ceaseless flow of God's grace deep within your soul. What a promise. That's John chapter 7. So that no matter what tragedy faces you in life, the worst of the worst, if you're a child of God and you know him, the Spirit of God will minister to you deep within your soul in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of death, in the midst of being forsaken, disappointed, doesn't matter. That's God's promise. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist was right. Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What did John the Baptist mean by that? Well, Jesus comes as truth, and there were those who, they will resist the truth. They hate the truth. They despise the truth. John chapter 7, Jesus said that. He's having a conversation with his own siblings, his own brothers. Blood, blood, they're half-brothers. They have the same physical mother, Mary. He's having a conversation at feast day. His brothers that we know of, well, there was James, right, and Jude. And then there's Joseph and Simon. He had at least four brothers. John chapter 7. Jesus is talking to them. And you know what his brothers are doing? This is like maybe midway through Jesus' ministry. Um, they are mocking and taunting Jesus. They're jealous. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. And they're taunting him. They're daring him. Here, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Go out and be with your people. And Jesus said, uh, no, if I do that, I will get killed. Go show your public face at the feast. He said, no, you go and do that. These are his brothers that he grew up with. They don't believe in Jesus. You know, at that point, and that's when Jesus said, uh, people don't hate you, but they hate me. Literally, he said, the world hates me. What does the world think of Jesus? Do they love him? No. Write it down. The world hates Jesus. The world hates Christ. There's no way to ameliorate that or gloss it over or tone it down or make it nicer. The world, that means unbelieving people, they hate Jesus. doesn't matter how they mask it. Very important to get that ingrained in our brain. These are the people we're dealing with. And before you became a Christian and before I became a Christian, 
You hated Christ and I hated Christ. I know I did. Before I got saved at age 19. Because I have memories about it. Who would I blame? Who would I curse when something went wrong? God. Christ. So that's what Jesus means. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. I came for judgment. I came with fire. Now, and then fire has this twofold ministry. Fire isn't all bad, right? Is fire always bad? No. Can fire be a good thing? Yes. Fire can be used to purge and purify precious stones and elements. But fire can also be bad. So... Fire can give warmth, fire can consume and destroy, and that's what Jesus does. There's the twofold reaction to the truth, Jesus Christ. That's what it means he comes with fire. Jesus is the son of God, but he's also like the sun, the heat, the hottest source in the universe. And it's the same sun that hardens the clay, also melts the wax, right? And that has nothing to do with the nature of the sun changing. It's the reaction of those who are interfacing with the Son. And that's how it is with human beings. Every single human being, when they hear about Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the truth of his gospel, the truth of his demands, the truth of their sin, they will react one of two ways, in humble repentance and cry out to God for salvation and mercy and grace and embrace Jesus as the Savior. Or they will stiffen up their neck and put the fist in God, defy God the Savior, the judge, Curse him and then spend the rest of their life trying to hide from him. Drown the reality of him out of their mind, which they can't do. Those are the two reactions. So that's what he means by verse uh, 49 in the declaration. And then he goes on, uh, go, moving on to the explanation there. Well, what does he mean by this? I've already given a lot of that, but he says, I've come to cast fire upon the earth. So Jesus came to light the fire. Uh, it hasn't been lit yet. He's, he's lived for 32 years up to this point, 32 and a half, and still the fire hasn't... He's preparing the fire. That's what the kindling means. He's getting everything in place, you know, getting those little dry leaves together and the little sticks that he's about to light so that it consumes. I'm getting it ready to light that fire that makes all the difference. That will be the pivot and the nexus point of all of world history. That's his death. That's what the kindling is leading up to. That, that's the fire that will burn with fury, is his death. And he said, and how I wish it were already kindled. Uh, I, I wish this death thing were behind me. We're going to see him plead with the Father, Father, if this cup of death could pass, but not my will, thine be done. So that's what he's talking about. The explanation, uh, 50 and 51, he's already hinted at it there. What is this fire? Well, it's the preparation of his crucifixion, his death on behalf of sinners. Not only dying on behalf of sinners, but also dying to absorb the full fury of an infinite holy God, God's wrath. Who punished Jesus on the cross? We say the Father did. God the Father. And Jesus' punishment wasn't primarily physical. It was completely physical. But that, wasn't, that didn't exhaust the punishment. The greatest extent of the punishment was on his soul, on his person. The estrangement of his relationship with the Father that he shared for all eternity. The only time in his life when he cried out and didn't call God his Father. He called out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that was the fullest fury 
of that judgment that fell upon him was the separation of his relationship for those six hours when he was on the cross and the fury of God's wrath upon his soul. In addition to all the excruciating physical punishment and shame that went with being crucified. So here, that's his explanation. What do I mean by casting fire and the judgment that comes with it? And the kindling, verse 50 and 51, but I have a baptism to undergo. What is that? Well, he used baptism as a, baptism just means to be dunked, to be immersed, to be enveloped in, to be consumed by. It can be literal, it can be metaphorical. Here it's metaphorical. I have an immersion I need to undergo where I'm going to give all of my life, and it's in death. He referred to his death as a baptism with his disciples, when he said, can you really be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? He used the word baptized three times in that verse. Can you really die the death I'm about to die? No, you can't. Well-meaning apostle. So that's what he's talking about. I have a baptism. I have a death to undergo. And how distressed I am. How constrained I am. How overwhelmed I am. How vexed I am deep within my soul. How troubled I am. This is six months away from the cross. I wonder when it kicked in that Jesus knew as a human being that he was going to die. We don't know. We do know that at the beginning of the ministry, he, he, the very beginning, first miracle, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. So he knew at least three years before he died. But all the details, maybe not. But I am distressed until uh, it is accomplished. Verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. And here you just got to define the word peace. I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. Isn't that what Isaiah 9 said? Yeah. I thought when uh, the angels announced, or the shepherds, or the story in Luke, when they announced his birth, the angels sang on high at the birth of the Messiah, peace be on earth. Isn't that what we say at Christmas? Well, that's still true. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But first and foremost, it was a spiritual peace. That's what he meant. It's not utopia on earth like John Lennon wanted. Can't we all just get along, hold hands, sing kumbaya? No. Not a temporary, shallow, superficial human peace that doesn't last. This is real eternal peace primarily. So it's peace with God. Peace with God from the center between the holy God. That's the peace that Jesus came to bring by being a savior, by having to die and pay the penalty for sin. That's what separates you from your creator. Every single person is born separated from their maker. And you are, by birth, an enemy of your maker, God. Children of wrath. God is not your friend. God is not your father unless you're a born-again Christian. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Spiritually, from on high. That's the kind of peace Jesus was talking about. You want any other kind of peace that it doesn't have to do with me as Jesus, as sovereign Lord and King, who dies for sin and absorbs the wrath of the Father, you don't get any peace. You will have no peace. You will only have God's fury, not his peace. So what is peace from a biblical point of view? What is peace from Jesus' point of view? Peace is conditional. Get that. Peace is always conditional. Peace with God, supernatural peace, real peace. It's conditioned upon belief in Jesus Christ. It's conditioned upon repentance of sin. It's conditioned upon bowing the knee to your creator in utter humility, crying out, pleading for his mercy. My God, my God, forgive me. That's what Jesus is talking about. So uh, I didn't come to bring uh, superficial peace, but rather I came to bring 
division. So he's talking about at the spiritual level, not a superficial level. The audience he was talking to just had a superficial understanding of when the Messiah comes, he's going to make everything right. When the Messiah comes, he's going to crush the Romans, he's going to liberate us, he's going to exalt the Jews, he's going to kill the Gentiles, and we're going to have a corner on the truth, and everything's going to be great, and we're going to live forever in glory in the new heavens and the new earth, just like Isaiah said, and it's all about the Jews and our little enclave here, starting with us, Sadducees, Pharisees, the set-apart ones, the holy ones. So they had a very narrow, twisted version of what that peace was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus, Jesus is just shattering that false view. So that's the explanation. It's all about Christ, spiritual peace. And, there can all, and peace is conditional. And when that truth does come and you embrace that truth, there's going to be a division just as a consequence, just as a result. Like many of you, when you became a Christian, many of you, I know, you immediately gained many enemies, right? The moment you put your faith in Christ, Satan became your greatest enemy. I hope you're not one of those people that uh, everybody's got to like me or I'm not happy. Those are called people pleasers. You, You can't be a Christian and do that. Because the moment you got saved, Satan became your enemy. He hates you. The moment you became a Christian, the world hated you. So Satan hates you. Would the world hate you? And then when you got saved, uh, children of the devil who don't like Christ, who hate Jesus, they don't like the fact you're related to Jesus. And they all actually hate you deep within their soul. Some of them are just kind of courteous and don't want to tell you that to your face. But that's what the Bible says. They will hate you if you're a Christian. So you have all kinds of enemies and Sadly, and it's just the reality, when you got saved, some of those people who hate you and hated you and continue to hate you are your own family members. Maybe even your parents, your uncles, your aunts, your siblings, your spouse. And you're living with that reality. I, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I counsel new people, Christians who get, just get saved. And they are so excited. And that lasts about two weeks. And then they come just shocked and disillusioned about how their entire family has abandoned them or ostracized them because they became a Christian. And they thought, oh, this is glorious. I'm going to tell my family. They're going to celebrate with me. That's, what, that's how I was when I was 19. Oh, naive me. With nine older siblings and parents and uh, cousins, and we were tight, and it was a large community, and primarily it was all Catholic. And I got saved at age 19. Oh, glorious. I know Jesus now. I'm going to share the truth. Everybody's going to celebrate with me. Not. As a matter of fact, nobody did. Completely ostracized. Shut up. Quit talking about it. You're just a dumb college student. You don't know what you're talking about. This will change. This will pass. You're going through a phase. (laughs) That's what I was dealt with. And whatever you do, when you come home for Christmas at dinner, don't talk about religion. So you got the gag order. And no doubt some of you have had to live with that. Some of you are living with those consequences. It's real. And it's in your family. That's why Jesus said, well, you've got to count the cost. It's going, to, it's going to devastate your family, possibly. It's going to end family relationships. You may lose some of your friends. So that's verse 52, manifestations of this division. As a result, remember, it's over the truth. What do you love more, the truth about Jesus and God or your friendships? 
that are shallow and empty. Now, we don't go around and terminate our friendships necessarily, but this is the reaction we will get from people who hate the truth. Uh, for from now on, because I am here, because I declare the truth, and because I will die and absorb the wrath of the Father, be buried, rise again, and reign on high as the Savior, and call all people to repentance with the gospel that divides people into two, a twofold humanity, those who believe and those who don't, sons of God and sons of the devil. That's true of every human being. You're either in the family of God or in Satan's family. There is no other option. As a result, here are the consequences. Verse 52, for from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three, and they will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some of you actually might be able to read that and say, oh, yeah, this is true. Um, my parents don't talk to me anymore. Um, yes, my mother-in-law doesn't like me anymore. Or maybe you're a mother-in-law and you have a daughter-in-law who is not a Christian. She hates Christianity and she doesn't want anything to do with you. As a matter of fact, she won't let you see the grandchildren. I know people like that. We aren't going to let you see your grandchildren. Because you might tell them about Jesus. Literally. I've had to counsel people like that. I actually don't have an answer other than you just pray. You've got to trust God with that one. Well, I don't want to end on bad news and spoil everybody's lunch. Because the gospel is good news, right? Good news. So let's close on Mark 10. So those of you who are Christians, stop, pause. Think, did you count the cost? Did you know it was going to be this difficult? Did you know, um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. When we read that today, we think, oh, yeah, I grew up in a totally pagan home. Uh, atheist, or maybe it was Buddhist, or a religion that has nothing to do with Christianity. Agnostic, no religion. And then I got saved, and then I became a religious person, and the rest of my family wasn't religious. That is not what Jesus was talking about. To these people, All these people were religious. And actually, they were practitioners of the true religion. Think about it. They all believed in Yahweh. They all believed in the Old Testament. They all believed in the coming Messiah. They all believed in the story of Adam and Eve. They all believed that sin was real. They all believed that the earth was cursed. They all believed that Yahweh reigned on high, was the judge of the earth. They all believed that. And yet when you add the element that Jesus Christ is the God-man, the only Savior, the one who calls sinners to repentance, that divided that religious institution. That actually might be true of some of you here. I, I've seen it myself. Even within the Christian community. The truth divides even in the Christian community. Maybe you've, uh, as a committed Christian who actually believes the Bible is literal and you want to follow it, and some of your other Christian relatives who are a little squishy on the Bible and they think you're a little too, oh, she's a, yeah, she's a little too literal, and whoa, she's got some crazy legalistic views, and she actually believes Adam and Eve are real. And then they invite you to, um, then you get invited to a relative, a close relative who's a, a professing Christian, who you thought was a Christian, uh, because they want you to attend their niece's gay wedding. And you decide, well, wait a minute. Um, 
I love my family. I love my family members. I want their salvation. But I can't go there, attend that, and endorse immorality. Can't do that. Oh, my. You're going to get castigated, tarred, and feathered. Not just by unbelievers, but by professing Christians in your family. That is more and more of a common occurrence today. Going back to Mark 10. Let's close with this promise. Uh, Mark 10, starting at verse 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything. Peter's basically saying, We have counted the cost. We are in the minority. Uh, We have abandoned everything, and we have followed you. Peter's almost saying, So Jesus, what am I going to get out of this thing? This is really depressing. I don't have anything left. And Jesus gives this glorious promise. This is true of you if you're a Christian. Jesus said, truly I say to you, you can count on. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or left house or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that that person will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age including houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Wow. So, yeah, there will be, you will be ostracized. You might lose some immediate siblings temporarily or forever. But you know what? You're going to gain a whole bunch, a mass of spiritual family. As a Christian now, I don't just have, you know, a handful of siblings, brothers and sisters. I've got so many brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't even count them. They're all over the world. And because they love Christ, we have a relationship at the deepest possible level. That's what Jesus is talking about. Your family is the family of God, and the family of God is all over the earth. You haven't been abandoned. You haven't been orphaned. And it goes on. These are blessings in this life. So these are some of the, in the present age, mothers, children, and farms. And then at the end, he says, along with persecutions, don't forget that. There's the beautiful balance. And also there's more blessings to come. And in the age to come, eternal life. And all of God's people said, Amen. With that, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day, the Lord's day, the privilege to come, worship you, gather with the saints, hear your word. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that ongoing ministry of our wonderful internal teacher, the Holy Spirit, that he would impress these truths into our soul, that we wouldn't forget them, uh, that you would help us reconstruct our thinking if we need to and eliminate wrong thoughts we've had up to this point where we've been exposed to more of your truth, more of which we're accountable to. Help us to think straight, to think your thoughts after you in accordance with Scripture And some of this is radical thinking beyond our ability as finite people and also as sinners. So we lean on you. We lean on your grace. We thank you that you promised to give it to us. And we say all this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.